Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 25. With me this time is PhD student, historian, and editor-in-chief of critical publishing at Silver String Media, Zoya Street. Hey there. Thank you for coming on and talk with us today. No problem. Uh, you are a PhD student with the University of Lancaster, but prior to that, you said you have a master's in design history, and you've written several books under that lens of design history towards video games. Can you explain or describe how that works? So design history, in some ways, kind of sprang up in the middle of the last century in response to art history, where design schools needed to have, design schools in the UK, needed to have some kind of like historical humanity stuff happening in order to be considered a legitimate form of education. And so it came up as a way of designers getting their equivalent of art history. So where art history is uh, often more concerned with things like style and form, design history tends to concern itself with kind of the wider context in which things are made and conceived, putting an object into global networks of trade or into historical shifts in what kind of materials can be worked with or what kind of materials have to be worked with. Yeah, that sort of thing, kind of thinking about objects partly in their aesthetic form, but also how does that aesthetic end up um, like existing in communication with a load of other concerns. And how have you turned this towards video game? For example, in Delay, which is my most recent book, I'm interested in energy mechanics, which are a much-hated element of social and casual games where you can only play for a certain amount at a time, effectively, and then the game turns you away and says, come back in a few hours. So there's an important aesthetic point to be made there about what effect that has on the feeling of gameplay. It is productive to look at that with reference to what that kind of mechanic is doing in terms of the game as a business and what the user response to that mechanic is doing in terms of how it relates to other design trends in games and to that person's background in what kind of games they've played and to a broader historical trend about the role that games are playing in people's lives. If you look, So looking at it as a design historian, you get this kind of fuller picture of the different ways that an object that uses this design strategy of having an energy mechanic in it kind of travels in the world between people who fund games, people who play them, people who play them but don't like to admit that they play them, that kind of thing. And you do the same thing in uh, your first book, Dreamcast Worlds? Yeah, I try to. Part of that was looking at player experiences and looking at contemporary news articles for what was happening in the broader tech industry and in games at the time that made particular strategies on Sega's part seem like a good route to go down and then why did those things ultimately fail. Doing interviews with people who worked in marketing to understand their view on the place of Dreamcast games in the broader industry at the time and who they thought things were appealing to and and that sort of thing. Kind of understanding games as traded objects, again, as well as aesthetic experiences and seeing how those things end up in communication with each other. Why the Dreamcast in particular? I was interested in the Dreamcast, to be honest, partly because I hadn't owned one back uh, when it came out. Before I started researching the Dreamcast, I'd written my first ever paper on video games, which was about Final Fantasy games. And it was a bit depressing, because the more I examined them, the more I felt disillusioned. Not that I think Final Fantasy games are terribly evil and I would go on a long tirade about them now but I had this idealised view of them because I had so much nostalgia about them and they had such a special place in my heart. I was looking at them and having to ask what does this design mean when I break immersion with the game and I break my commitment to the internal fiction of the game and think about the fact that this is a really expensive piece of software for a really expensive piece of hardware and how does that affect the way that I view things like the way that technologies are represented in those games and it felt a bit disappointing and gross because <laughs> it's difficult not to then see 
the way that Final Fantasy games represent economies and technological progress and that kind of thing as being kind of conspicuously in service to the goals of the tech industry to get you to keep upgrading, keep upgrading your tech, technological like possessions in real life, and that gets represented in, I mean, arguably in most RPGs, but there's a particular balance to the way that it happens in Final Fantasy that makes it seem particularly cynical in a way. Anyway, I didn't want to get my heart broken again, so (laughs) I wanted to look at something that I didn't have so much emotional attachment to, and instead try to understand somebody else's emotional attachment, and come at it that way, just kind of, not so much because I was pursuing objectivity, which I don't believe in, but just kind of... Distance? For distance, for my own sake, that I wasn't interested at that point in trying to do something with a critical proximity to the subject and trying to examine my own emotional relationship with something and instead I wanted to like develop those skills of finding ways to account for other people's relationship with the thing. And so the Dreamcast was a good candidate because first of all I knew I was still interested in RPGs. So when I went and looked at and I knew I was still interested in the late nineties. I think that the years after 1998, there's some really fascinating stuff that ha- that's happening there around it kind of being a threshold for consumer technology in a lot of different ways. So I knew I wanted to be at that time, and I knew I wanted to be looking at RPGs. And so I was kind of looking around at lists people make of the best RPGs ever, uh, the best RPGs at this point in time, and that kind of thing. And Skies of Arcadia always came up on those lists. So I thought, well, I should obviously study Skies of Arcadia. Also, it it wasn't just that it kept coming up, but the things that people like about Skies of Arcadia were particularly appealing to me as a design historian. It's things like how it has these different world civilizations within the game that have their own very strong, unique look and feel to them. The game is really good at representing material cultures in order to help you understand the, uh, what kind of country you've ended up in. It's good at using architecture for that and that kind of thing. So that was kind of the first thing that people were saying about the game when they praised it. So it seemed like a really good subject of study. So that got me started on the Dreamcast, that I was going to study Skies of Arcadia. And then I was like, well, I'd better understand what was going on with the Dreamcast and kind of that context of why it failed, what Sega was trying to do at the time. And then it was after having written a thesis on Skies of Arcadia that I was thinking about what I was going to do after graduating. I was talking with a friend about it, and she was like, would you ever, do you think you would do more study after this point? And at the time, my answer was no. And I said, but if someone was to tell me that they would pay even just like a fraction of my living costs for me to expand my thesis into a book, then I would totally do that. I'd really like to do that. I don't want to leave my thesis alone where it is. I want to keep working on it. And I remember the friend I was telling this to did did not feel that way about her thesis. She was a classmate of mine. And kind of this, kind of being aware that most people, when they're done, they're done, and they just want it to go away. <laughs> and uh, But I had this attachment to this topic, and I wanted to keep going. Anyway, she was like, why don't you do that? And I, I started explaining that I can't afford to do this unless there's some money there. And then kind of stopped halfway through the explanation when I re- realized this Kickstarter thing that was becoming a thing a thing yeah it was it was becoming a thing at the time this wasn't long after the double fine kickstarter so i I think that's a moment when a lot of people realize that they can crowdfund a thing and that that's an option so yeah i kind of realized that that's something that i should try so i crowdfunded it on indiegogo because kickstarter was us only at that point and it was hard and i only just hit my goal but i did hit my goal and that allowed me to make dreamcast worlds it was, it's actually kind of interesting to read it as someone who is within the sphere of video games and knows all the little... Because you start off the book saying, I'm going to have to explain the real basics because this is to an audience who may not know anything. And it's interesting as an outsider to read those explanations and say, that's a really strange way to do things, and then connect it to my own lived experience. Read, oh, that's what this is describing. Hmm, Interesting. <laughs> And it feels like, wow, we do things kind of weird. Yeah, that was why I didn't edit that that stuff out. Because, yeah, the original thesis was for people who didn't have much experience with video games. 
And then I was like, I know the book is for a different audience, but there's something really interesting that happens when you take off gamer goggles and think about how strange this thing is. There was a moment when I was showing Skies of Arcadia to my classmates, and someone picks up the controller and starts playing with it. And it's not that this person had no experience with video games, it's just, you know, most people, they have, like, a handful of games that they've played, and they, they don't really engage with things beyond those. So this person starts playing, moving the character around, and keeps trying to make the character jump off tall surfaces, like, keeps getting the character to, like, jump on a roof, and they try to jump off the roof, or something like that, and it wasn't working, because this isn't an action game where you can jump off a thing and then watch the person, like, fall with a crunch, and then feel like you've done something cheeky and fun. It's an RPG, and you're not meant to do those things. And it was interesting to me kind of watching that person do that and going, oh, yeah, that's some... that's not obvious. Um... <laughs> Having having said all of that, I keep deliberately making my protagonist jump off things in Dragon Age Inquisition. But, uh, <laughs> um... Well, of course you do, because if you try that in real life, you end up like me with a broken ankle in a cast oh, for two months. I'm so sorry, that sucks. Yeah. No, <laughs> if you do it in Dragon Age, then it just fades to black, and then you come back where you started <laughs> kind of making choking noises if you fell in water or that kind of thing. Which I find really fascinating, right? Like, sorry, this is a complete diversion. But you jump off something you weren't meant to jump off. You die. You come back to the point before you jumped off a thing. So it's meant to be like it never happened. But your health is depleted and you're coughing because you did experience that deadly fall. What is going on there? There's like this collapse between the reality that did happen and the reality that could have happened... And you're experiencing both at once? Multiverse chaos theory? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, seriously, that's why it's it's rewarding, kind of, throwing the Inquisitor off things. It lends itself to all kinds of existential questions. But yeah, so I was kind of watching other people play Skies of Arcadia and going, you know what, there's a lot of tacit assumptions that this game relies on you having. And then when you unpack them, what you're really describing is a set of a set of unspoken rules for how this game works. And if we're supposed to think that all games are made up of rules, even games that are just about ambling around in a 3D environment because physics has rules, then a rule like that is implicitly kind of part of the world, the, that world's physics or that world's norms in some way. And what does that tell us about the object that, that, that's then been created? That became really interesting to me. Like, once you denormalize a lot of stuff, it becomes part of the design uh, much more explicitly. It reminds me of... There's a, there's a book there. Like, I'm not, I don't think it was the design of everyday things that I got this from, but it might be, where it was trying to explain the design of doors. And then if you actually stop and think about how a door works they are fundamentally flawed and weird in every single degree. In fact, that they don't, that you have to have someone explain a door to you at some point in your life because the design doesn't lend itself to explaining it itself. That's interesting. In the cover, the cover shows like a teapot with the handle right under the spout. Yeah, that's the design to, of everyday to, things. Yeah, that, that's a, well, that's like the same idea, but I'm not sure if this door thing came from that book, but the idea that how an object looks should tell you how it functions. Right. And video games don't do that. Or at least most video games do that. There are very simple video games that do indeed are able to get get that across to the player. But it's interesting to see it from that point of view, though. Yeah, The Design of Everyday Things was a really important book for me, kind of thinking about affordances and the way that objects inscribe behaviours and that kind of thing. Now that I'm doing a PhD, I'm not allowed to unproblematically say that objects inscribe behaviours, um, because that's technological determinism, and it's not okay. Um, and the higher you go up on the education food chain, the more you have to explain every single word in a sentence. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not allowed to just say that, like, the way that an object is made or the technology that it's made with forces people to be a, one way or another way. <laughs> but it is interesting to think about the way that an object might 
kind of express that script of you're supposed to come here and click this and wait 30 seconds and then pour or something like that. Yeah, because like, against the teapot, it's like you don't know it's ready until you hear that whistle, but that whistle isn't in every teapot. Mm. It's like it's in the few to indicate something, and then you have to be taught what that something is, that it indicates is. And there's, there's something about the way that objects like that build a relationship with you as well. Where the, the If you're anything like me, then uh, you have a very active, like, moment-to-moment relationship with the object that makes your tea every single day and so if it does have personal quirks that you know about that you didn't know about when you first met this object and other people who don't know this object as well as you do don't know its quirks but you do and you've learned how to do this like perfectly tuned dance together where you know how this teapot works there's something very intimate about that and there's a way that objects like that lend themselves to intimacy i think and your other book, Delay. What I found interesting like that is because it, it tries to do the same kind of thing as Dreamcast. It explains like a, it's like a histography of a certain element within the video game community, in this case a mechanic, rather than uh, a console. Mm. But w- what I found interesting is that unlike the Dreamcast, this one doesn't have a clear end point, or at least a tapering off point where, okay, we sort of get this now. Because you publish this when we're still working out Delay and waiting as and energy mechanics as a thing. Like, I got through to the end of the book, and I realized, huh, this was probably published before Darkroom, and definitely before Robert Yang's Hurt Me Plenty, where delay is used in very different circumstances for very different effects. Yeah, and the the scope of the book is quite narrow as well. So, yeah, a Darkroom, I would say, is more of an idle game than a game that has an energy mechanic. It has a delay mechanic, though. And yeah, I don't know what I would have done if I'd written the book a few months later when when there'd been even more work kind of pushing idle games. I guess I do talk about Candy Box, which is an idle game rather than really a game with an energy mechanic as such. It's more like you take the energy mechanic and make it into the whole thing, you get Candy Box. And from there, it's easier to kind of have a jumping off point to understand the rest of idle games. That's not where idle games come from, because they're older than Candy Box, but there's kind of a journey that we've taken as a community toward things like A Dark Room. And I don't know whether I would have ended up writing a book about idle games instead, or whether I would have just had to make the book longer in order to account for that kind of thing that was going on. But yeah, yeah, it doesn't have this kind of closing off point of... And then the story ends, and we no longer make players wait, or something like that. <laughs> or we we have an under here's what the tool does in all these different circumstances. Now we're working on new tools. Yeah, or maybe it's it, still in development. And maybe the end point is you know now delay has been normalized, and most games have an idle mode, which is something that was brought up at GDC in a talk on idle games by Anthony Pecorella from Congregate, which. This talk was fascinating, and I've got an essay written on this that I think I'm waiting to publish. I don't think I've published it yet. Yeah, so Anthony Pecorella was talking about the history of idle games and talking about the advantages of the idle game style from his perspective as a monetization guy on a games platform, on a free-to-play games platform which was there was this really interesting tension between a lot of idle games are critical uh, like countercultural critical of capitalism the the point of them is that there is this that in most other games interactivity is this kind of opiate like illusion that you can do something in order to guarantee your own success and you got this success because you worked for it where in fact your actions in most games are quite mechanical and you're just becoming part of this machine you know, in a way that's really comparable to Marxist ideas of how factory work turns people into part of a machine. The, a lot of games are just making you into part of this system that you are not directly controlling. You're just playing with it and you're complying with it. And even if you weren't there, the system could theoretically just run itself. And idle games often are there to kind of demonstrate that, although they've moved beyond and have become kind of a creative form of their own. So there's this interesting tension between his explaining that history and his looking at these 
all these games, but at the same time his perspective is, look, now we host a bunch of idle games on Congregate, some of which are more satirical anti-capitalist ones. They have really high return rate. They have really high engagement rate. And a lot of them have like very high monetization. And they actually work really well within the big capitalist structure of our games platform. And we want to see more of them get made because they're making us a lot of money. And one thing he was proposing was that a lot of games could have an idle mode. Where if a game has like a core loop and then it has a meta game layer about progress, about leveling up, generating points that go into um, that go into unlocking different abilities, which then allow you to generate more points. Then actually engaging with the core loop, whether that's a puzzle or whether that's dungeon crawling or whatever, actually engaging with it could give you a higher return, but while you're away, it could keep playing itself at a slower rate. And you don't have to be beholden to constantly dungeon crawling if what you're really interested in is making your character look awesome with minimal input from from the player. And so that notion is really interesting to me, that maybe more and more games will have an idle mode. I was thinking about that with regard to with regard to like Dragon Age and Bioware games after like thinking back to it feels like a long time ago now, but it's clearly part of the current trajectory that we're living in. Thinking back to the harassment that Jennifer Hepler got once hardcore gamers found out that she'd proposed that years before that players be able to skip combat scenes and the idea that this was some sort of terrible this off this this was a really terrible thing to suggest. And now it feels like we're coming back around to this, and um, we are getting closer to having a way that you can let a game play itself if that, if it might as well happen that way. That's fascinating. That was such a long rant. <laughs> I, I love it. Oh, I'm, I hope that's up on the vault, now that I think about it. Did this happen after Dreamcast Worlds that you started Memory Insufficient, or was uh, yeah, it during... It I think it was after Dreamcast Worlds. It was certainly after I'd crowdfunded it. I may have still been finishing up when I started Memory Insufficient. I can't actually remember. Well, what was the original genesis of the idea for Memory Insufficient? So I believe part of it was that I was, I'd just been doing some oral histories for Dreamcast Worlds. Now, the oral history chapter in Dreamcast Worlds is the weakest chapter but I'm still glad that I did it because it was part of a kind of learning experience of like how do you how do you write about games that are no longer fully playable and how do you capture how do you capture something about that game based on people's memories of it. I found the oral history chapter the most interesting to write. The oral history chapter is the one on Fantasy Star Online. And I'd, it had been the most interesting to me in terms of I can't play this game on a server the way that the servers were back in 1999. I, ca- I could connect to a fan-maintained server and play with a handful of people who've been playing Fantasy Star Online for like 15 years and like just refuse to stop. But it's not quite the same thing. And the way that the community works, the way that people interact with each other will be really different. And that kind of decenters my role as the historian in the piece like i don't get to be the i don't get to be the expert in the same way and there's something really powerful about that and there was something that i really liked about that ideologically and so i wanted to create something that would get people telling their own histories a lot more and get people engaging in this process where it's your history but you're also doing some text text research to to locate that and to figure out what else was going on at the time. That ended up not quite being the standard kind of style that people gravitated towards at Memory Insufficient, which is cool. But that was kind of... I wanted to get people who were involved in games, and particularly people who uh, work in games, thinking about how their own history and the history of the form and the history of the culture around games affect them and their work and part of why I wanted that to exist was I'd been thinking back to the school where I did my master's degree which was the Royal College of Art in London and one of the good things about the Royal College of Art is that 
everyone there who is studying a practice-based discipline, be it ceramics or vehicle design or architecture, everyone takes a course in their first year on critical and historical studies. And at the end of the first year, they write a 10,000-word dissertation in critical and historical studies. It doesn't have to be directly related to the kind of work they're doing in their practice, but the idea is that they develop this very high level of literacy when it comes to critically and historically looking at design. And it allows you to have some really interesting conversations with the people who are learning to make things. And I I often wish that there was more going on the other way, where those of us in humanities were taking a year-long course in how to make something, which sadly wasn't the case. But I really appreciated the kind of conversations that were fostered by the Critical and Historical Studies course, and wanted to see a similar kind of intervention happen in games, where... I could create something that would be, the point of it would be to empower more people to kind of get stuck in and and wade into thinking about that historical and critical context. Yeah. And it's, it's a, you actually opened it up to uh, voices and perspectives that haven't been heard. I'm thinking specifically of your Asian history issues. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yes, that's another aspect of it. The... I was I started thinking about memory insufficient during Black History Month. It was getting to the end of Black History Month. I'd only just found out that it was Black History Month because my political engagement was clearly um, lacking. It's also an American thing. Yes, it was Black History Month in America, not in the UK. It, in the UK, it's in October, and in America, it's in February. But, I mean, games blogging is largely an American thing, right? And I was like, why have I heard nothing about Black History Month in games blogging. When it's Women's History Month, there's always something happening. And nothing was happening for Black History Month that year in games writing. And that freaked me out. (laughs) And I was like, no, I need to... Like, I was like, I need to go out and read things so that I can learn more about how games intersect with Black History. And I was like, well, it's too late for me to, like, do an issue... Like, make the first issue of this magazine be for Black History Month, but I made sure that I, there was one at the end of the first year. And it, it was another case where I wanted memory insufficient to exist so that I could read essays that I cannot write, and so that I could go out and find these things that need to exist and just bring them together and share them with, share them with other people and try and, try and make them easier to find rather than just having a blog and being like, I'm going to write about these things that need to be written about, because often you can't be the person who writes it. And so the first issue was for Women's History Month, and then in that first year I kept a really close eye on those kind of things that are already happening where there is a history month for something because there's a need to raise awareness and to try and make it fit into those things. So, like, the disabilities issue came alongside Disabilities in the Workplace Awareness Month, The gender and sexual minorities issue came in July, I guess, when there's a lot of pride parades. I think the Asian histories issue came during Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I think. Kind of trying to learn from what other people, what, like, what already exists in terms of heritage months to figure out what should Memory Insufficient be highlighting in its first year. And, uh, I believe when you did the second volume in the second year, you came back to a number of these topics again, and the Asian histories issue there spun off another magazine by, I think, some of the people who actually wrote in that issue to further expand upon their own culture and their own history, because, yeah, those stories don't get talked about a lot. Yeah, that's by Chris Raghav, who was the guest editor of the second Asian histories issue in volume two. I don't know how to pronounce this e-zine. I don't... I guess e-drive? Is that it? Well, th- that's what the notation is. It's like you're accessing the e-drive in DOS, but it'll be down in the show notes. Yeah, I really like Chris Ragov's work. Yeah, I really love the the kind of stuff he's highlighted where the entire way that, the entire way that people accessed games like 15, 20 years ago in South Asia was 
kind of separate or parallel or underground to like the official efforts of publishers and that means that the game's canon ends up being really different for people depending on like where they come from so instead of like i think the example he gives is the of something that's really important for the canon like in the u.s is the orange box so instead of assuming that everyone across the world has got this same attachment to this same set of games that have influenced them it's actually really important to kind of pay attention to ask and to ask those questions and to learn what other people's canon is and to kind of imagine different ways that that could affect games history and could affect the kind of things that people go on to make and this is but the magazine on your part in in general has been probably a very difficult and massive undertaking because originally you tried to do it monthly and then certain delays happened because i can't imagine actually trying to do that solo it's still mostly monthly. It's like four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. It's gonna it's gonna be very different from volume three, but volume two is also gonna be it'll be ten issues by the end over the course of twelve months. So it's a lot of work, <laughs> but there's something really nice about being monthly. There's a kind of I don't know. There's a sense of immediacy to it. There's a sense that you can get to the end of the year and look back and go and just look at the volume of stuff that has been brought together and feel really satisfied, really pleased. But yeah, it helped a lot kind of figuring out a way to work with guest editors for most of the issues of Volume 2. There was a bit of friction early on where kind of trying to work out what does someone need to know before they like start being a guest editor? Like, what do I need to make sure I've communicated with someone early on? What are my expectations that I hadn't really made explicit? But I got better at that, and now there's kind of a really smooth on-ramp where there's just a procedure that I can tell someone about straight away as soon as they express interest, and then be like, would this work for you? Um, This is the timeline I'm thinking of. These are the tasks that I'll be asking you to do. And uh, and then we can just get going. And that really helped to be able to get things out quickly, because it meant that we could have a pretty robust editing process for every essay that comes in. We end up with really excellent editing happening uh, on these essays because there's someone else coming in and helping and be able to, like, lay this thing out, package it as uh, one unified thing that people can download, and it it all ends up working quite smoothly. (laughs) It's a job, though. Like uh... Yes. I I was trying to think, what do I ask next? (laughs) Oh, yeah, well, since uh, it's been announced recently that you have become the editor-in-chief of Critical Publishing at Silverstream Media, and that Silverstream Media has created a critical publishing arm. Mm. Memory of Sufficient is going to be under that, and I, I believe you've announced that it's going to be soon, that the first issue of Volume 3 is coming? Yeah, so Volume 3 is going to shift to being a website rather than being distributed only by PDF, and then there's going to be regular PDF kind of compendiums that bring things together. Yeah, some of them chronologically and some of them by theme. And oh, what else do you need to know about that? The new site is launching soon, by the end of the month. And we're looking at, we are rethinking the way that, not rethinking entirely. Um, we are approaching the design of our website so that we kind of try to move away from the sense that a blog post needs to be read quickly and then talked about on Twitter immediately and that you're going to be here and then you're gone and you need to get the point and go. And instead, we want to continue to have that feeling that Memory Insufficient has where you download the PDF and you're like, cool, this is what I am doing with my Sunday afternoon. Like, I'm going to spend an hour or two reading the whole of this issue with a cup of tea and and it's going to be a pleasant way for me to spend my weekend. So we're designing this website to be a slow read thing that looks great on a tablet so that you load it up on a pleasant afternoon and kind of take a, a long leisurely read and be able to really digest things. That's our big focus right now is kind of trying to make web publishing compatible with the kind of content that we publish. So you're working on the design. Uh, yeah. Has the process been working? Has it been suitable? Or other adjectives I can't think of at the moment? 
it's going really well so far. We're working with a web designer who's doing a really excellent job. So we're working with a really great web designer called Cole Brown, and uh, it's been really exciting because she really gets what we're trying to do, and she's really thrilled about it, and she's had some really excellent ideas for how to make things work, both in terms of the way that content is displayed and organized, um, and in terms of how we set up social sharing to discourage tweets that try to summarize an entire piece and encourage someone to share a fragment that's really interesting to them and share a fragment that's really beautifully phrased and then invite someone to cut the tweet is an invitation to go and see the whole thing rather than the tweet being i found this piece that i'm going to like hold up as my banner and i'm fighting under this banner like this this polemic can be summed up in one sentence that i fully get behind and instead kind of allowing some room for complexity while also allowing something to be shareable and appreciable in a small in a small chunk but yeah she's doing a really great job of thinking about the information architecture of like how do you host content that isn't immediate and reactive like you expect a blog to be i know i, f- I feel like i that there should be more to say but i also want to get to your work that you or at least some of the work you did yes last year on japanese video game criticism mm where you were reading it and examining it and then distilling it to the English-speaking side of the yeah. world. Yeah. Oh, I wish I had more time to do more of that. It was it was some of the most exciting work that I'd done in a bit. But, yeah, so I wanted to... Part of it was just... I'm going to flatter you all a bit. Part of it is that critical distance is so important to me, and it's, so, it's such an incredible thing that we have. And... I was trying to figure out if there's an equivalent to critical distance in Japan, because clearly there's going to be people writing about games in Japan, right? And is there anything that's bringing it all together and organizing it and making it easy to get started reading that stuff? And I couldn't find anything, which then made me more intrigued, where I'm like, I've got to try and find the people doing the really interesting games criticism in Japanese. But yeah, I found a, f- a couple outlets that I f- that were really interesting to me, and I found some older. I found a much older website from like the late '90s that was hosting games criticism written by several different people, many of whom then went into academia. But that was kind of my starting point of finding this beautiful old thing that was had been. It's been very deliberately preserved, where someone's like, "Look, we did good work on this site, and we're not going to like continue the project. We're not going to bring it up to date. We're not going to redesign the website." It's still this very basic HTML thing with a blue background and everything's inside a table. But this needs to be kept alive and it needs to keep going because, yeah, this was some really special work. And the essays hosted on this website, kind of, a lot of them are doing a really great job of thinking about games in this, like, nuanced communication between, like, form and content and thinking about the way that literary tropes and different, like, media forms affect expression and that kind of thing. Like, really good work that would shine out still today as being, as being, like, pretty special and pretty accomplished. And they were doing it really early. So it was, it's really mm-hmm. great to find something like that. And, like, as you know, Critical Distance, because you have this issue of so many of the links to going dead over time and having nowhere to preserve the pieces that you keep a record of like it's it's not always easy to kind of go back before 2008 and find the really great games criticism that was happening and it was a real it was a real pleasure to find something like that i was actually shocked to to learn that it was from the late 90s because of how still relevant a lot of that work that you managed to translate and explain to to the non-japanese speaking of us yeah like not all not all of it is from the late 90s but the first one that i did is and yeah it it is extraordinary that it's still super relevant it still feels groundbreaking we haven't integrated that kind of thinking yet into a minimum like waterline for how we write about games Uh, as a historian is there any other like areas that interest you or that you'd like to get to examine at some point I really wish I could be doing more interlingual work. There's something really exciting about it. There's something just really fantastic about trying to do this interpretive work on how other people think about games that accounts for differences in language, differences in styles of training, and that kind of thing. I think a major thing is that I 
want to figure out... My master's degree was partly at the Royal College of Art and partly at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. And I got, I started studying there initially because I wanted to work in museums and then came to terms with the fact that that wasn't going to happen. But I'm still really interested in how do you tell historical stories spatially? How do you tell these stories by encouraging a closer relationship with an object rather than like diverting someone to a text? Instead, putting objects in communication with each other and using text sparingly. And I would love to kind of start working on game projects that allow that kind of thing to happen, where histories of games can be told through games, I guess. Histories of games can be told through bringing game objects into exhibition spaces within a digital space. That does sound really great, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I just need to learn Unity and also figure out how to extract 3D objects from other games and then put them into a Unity project. That can't be hard, right? Well, not for some people. For you and me, probably. (laughs) Probably very so. Yeah. Well, oh, right. Since we've been doing publishing these past few months here on the podcast, and because I have a somewhat affinity to this, even if no one else cares, uh, the covers of your publications, your books, and your magazine. How did you uh, come up with those, or did you uh, contract them out? No, none of them were contracted out. The cover of Dreamcast Worlds is, I guess it's fan art, but it's fan art by a professional game artist. I found that because I knew that I wanted the cover to be fan art from Fantasy Star Online, because I wanted to show how a player was seeing that world in their mind's eye, in a way. Uh, rather than just straightforward having, like, a screenshot or having... Well, concept art would have been nice. Sega was not going to let me do that. (laughs) (laughs) They, like, showed me some concept art for Skies of Arcadia, and then they were like, yeah, take take photocopies, you know, take as much as you like, just don't ever show it to anybody, ever. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, that's probably not going to happen. And it took so long to get even interviews to happen at Sega, because everything was... Like, it, it was really closed off, and they were really reticent to talk to me. That I was like, I have no leverage whatsoever. Like, there was no way I could make this happen. So concept art might have been good in terms of getting that same sense of, like, there's a story to this game and a reality to this game that goes beyond simply what you can see on the screen. But fan art was interesting to me as kind of privileging the, the stories of the people who were playing the games and who were, like, living inside of it. And then... I really liked this particular image that I used for the cover because in the background there's these silhouettes of people standing around water fountains holding umbrellas because it's raining because the rain effects in Fantasy Star Online were really impressive. It's raining and they're stood in the background just kind of chatting near next to a water fountain just hanging out like it's a park which is, was like a huge part of how people played that game but wasn't part of the design explicitly, really. Like, there was a hangout area in the kind of hub, but the dungeons were meant to be dungeons. But the dungeons ended up being the main hangout space. So I loved the way that that piece of fan art um, captured that, like, metaphorically with umbrellas, where the idea is that, like, if you were fighting, you wouldn't have an umbrella, right? But if you're just hanging out and it's raining, you're going to need an umbrella. And so I really liked that, like, symbolism that very succinctly represents what it was like to play that game for people. So very generously, the person who drew that allowed me to use it and drew vignettes for each section of the book on the inside as well. So that was really lovely. The cover for Delay was just me. I just uh, found a royalty-free 3D image of a potion bottle that was half empty. Paid for a license to use the object and then just use the preview image of the object for the cover. The covers of Memory Insufficient... Well, there's a certain style to how the covers work. You have, like, half image, and then half is the white space for the title and the explanation and the issue sort of things. Yeah. So, that, so yeah, that, that was me again. Kind of, There was a style of graphic design that I kind of wanted to imitate that I didn't do a perfect job of because I use way too many fonts. Um, <laughs> I, I have learned since 
since starting work on the redesign and talking to people at Silverstring, who know more about graphic design than I do. Um, <laughs> but there was a kind of style that I wanted to imitate of like enthusiast journals in art and design, especially kind of like the middle of the last century. But you know, it's kind of uh, it's it's a look that obviously kind of uh, had a huge resurgence in the noughties. So I was really interested in using that style to kind of challenge the idea of what games look like and what games magazines look like by making it look cleaner, using serifs, that kind of thing. The image on the left-hand side, I remember a couple of times I would publish an issue and someone would be like, oh, I got to be the cover story, or someone would share the issue on Reddit, which, don't do that. I don't care. <laughs> like, I know that there are nice subreddits and whatever, but like every time I find like a trackback link going to Reddit, and then I go and look at it, it's just people being snarky all over everything because everyone wants to be, everyone wants to have a criticism of the thing that got shared that's uh, like the right criticism, you know? Um, and everyone thinks they're a comedian. Yeah, like everyone wants to be right at somebody else's expense. No one can just go like, this is really great. These are the things I like about it. Anyway, so it would get shared. Like, you would see someone on Reddit being like, why is the cover story the shortest piece in the issue? That doesn't make any sense. The cover story should have been the thing that's 10 pages long. And I found that interesting because I wasn't thinking of it as an editorial choice about this thing should be the cover story. And it was more, I have like four or five essays most of them are about a game that was are, are about a video game where i can fair use says that i can use art from the game to illustrate what that game is like in the body of the essay but it's a bit of a stretch of fair use to say that i can use that image on the cover to say hey look inside this magazine i'm writing about this game it's probably fine and no one would push it and whatever but i wanted to be extremely well behaved so what would happen is if anyone had written about something that was older than video games or if anyone had written about something that they had the rights to the images of that kind of thing then that made it onto the cover which sometimes felt uncomfortable because often i'd be putting an issue together and there'd be I'd want to write an essay that fills in a gap in the issue. The gap is almost always no one's written about tabletop games or no one's written about folk games or anything like that. Like, no one's written about anything from before 1980. So then I'd be the one writing that, so it would be my essay that has the, the art that is in public domain because of its age. And so then it'd look like I'd made myself the cover story, which I was never super comfortable with. But it's, it's honestly because... One thing is that I want to challenge what people think games look like. So having things that are not digital games is really helpful for that. The cover of the first Asian Histories issue is a woodblock print of people playing Janken, like the Japanese precursor to Rock, Paper, Scissors. But it's not Rock, Paper, Scissors. It's like Fox, Rabbit, something. And so it's representing people getting drunk making ridiculous hand gestures and turning into these kind of grotesque animal versions of themselves. And it's like a really awesome image and uh, it's a really great way of representing like what games feel like. Like that kind of uh, having a temporary shift in who you are for the purposes of acting out a particular kind of play. That was kind of uh, the thought that went behind the covers for Memory Insufficient. That was really detailed. To close out, the fluff question. What is your favorite game of all time? Oh, don't do that. Don't ask me that. <laughs> Every time people ask me that, like, I get this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. Because I'm like, I can't think... Like, I just panic, and then I can't think of anything, so I'm panicking. And I'm panicking because, like, I need to think of something, and what if I think of something that's horribly, like, deficient and not good enough? And then everyone will know that I'm a bad gamer. Yeah... I can't think of a good answer. I'm sorry. I always find that the answer, no matter what it is, is, can be very revelatory. It doesn't have to be educational as to what you think the best game is, but it's revelatory towards the person itself. Hmm. I guess there's a couple different answers, because one of them is, what do I think is 
game that I've played a lot of that I just think is really well designed and interesting to me, like and just endlessly interesting, is Civilization. But the I'm first a, one? No, uh, I'm a noob. So Civ <laughs> Four or Civ Five. I like them both for different reasons. But then games that I have like a strong emotional affinity with that I just enjoy the aesthetic experience of and have a lot of fond feelings toward without necessarily having a good critical eye on it. SSX. SSX Tricky and SSX3. I have a lot of positive feelings toward. I just really like throwing myself into a landscape and making nice shapes with my body. And it makes me sad that there's so few games where you're doing that. I really want that to be like, you know, like an endless runner, but with expressive dance. Where you're just like running along, throwing your body into the air and doing weird shit with your limbs. Somebody get on that. Please get on that. I don't, I don't, I, w- I want to say, like, please get on that and consult me on it, but I don't know anything about dance, really, so I'd be a really bad consultant on it. I just really want that to exist. And with, like, glowing things on the edges of your limbs as well, that's really important. That's part of what I like about SSX. To get the, the phantom strobe effect going. Yeah. Like, yeah, I really love the way that SSX kind of does things with, with light uh, and, like, this conceit of, like, there's snow spray that's getting caught by the sunlight that's then, like flying off your body, and then that goes cosmic with, like, the uber moves, which then just straight up make you throw golden light off your body. Basically, I really like throwing golden light off my body. That's also a thing that I like in MMOs. It's a thing I like in... I like playing Neverwinter, which is a free-to-play MMO uh, from Perfect World, who are this company that purely exists to make shit tons of money from free-to-play MMOs. And I like being a cleric in Perfect World because your whole job is to run around throwing sunlight off your body. (laughs) And I deliberately wear less armor so that more of my body is showing. (laughs) Just like throwing light off of it in order to heal everyone around me. It's a great feeling. (laughs) I can see it. Well, thank you very much, Zoya, for coming on. No problem. Thank you. And anything that we mentioned, we found in the show notes. It's been a blast. Yes. Yeah,